This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina. On today's show, we talk about what Utah would have looked like in the past with Drs. Tom Morris and Scott Ritter. We explore what ancient landscapes would have looked like and how geologic change has shaped the world we see around the Colorado Plateau today. It's a good show. Stay with us. All of these formations are really pretty generally distributed in the Colorado Plateau and in eastern Utah and parts of adjacent states. But it's right here at Arches where we see the development of so many arches. So there has to be something more to the story than just that the Entrada sandstone is a good arch former. today's show, we talk about ancient landscapes with Dr. Tom Morris and Scott Ritter. Drs. Morris and Ritter are geologists from Brigham Young University. Both together and separately, they have explored the geology of the Colorado Plateau and have recently come out with a book that recreates satellite images of what Utah would have looked like over past eons. Here we explore what our area would have looked like in the past and the forces and events that made it look the way it does today. Utah has some of the best geology in the world. Is it correct to say that the reason is just because there's not a lot of vegetation and it's exposed? Uh, yeah, certainly the, the climate and the exposure is a big part of it, but it also has some pretty spectacular things that are, are sort of unique to, to Utah. California's got complex and great geology, but it's covered, largely covered, and and so you can't see it, but uh, but Utah's just got spectacular vistas that uh, you can see rocks of a lot of different ages, rocks of different types, metamorphic igneous, lots of sedimentary rocks. When did you guys start chronicling the geology of the parks? Uh, well, this book uh, was uh, the concept. I was on a sabbatical in New Zealand, and New Zealand has a number of national parks, and, and they're based in geology. And New Zealand's a great place for geology as well. And uh, when we visited the parks, there would, they'd have these little trifolded brochures about the geology of the park. And, and I bought one, and it gave a simple overview of the park and the geology, and I got the un understanding and could see relationships there. And uh, so then, as uh, you know, we sat on those brochures for a few weeks, I realized, you know, we could do this for the National Parks of Utah, because by that time I had, I had become fairly familiar with them. And uh, so that's how the book started out. We, we started making individual uh, tri-folded brochures. And uh, after a few years of selling those to the visitor centers, uh, we got the idea of throwing it together as a book. And uh, Scott participated heavily in that and in the illustration, especially of the, of the book. And, uh, and it's been uh, a fun ride ever since to watch it sell. It's been fun. Yeah, they pay <clears throat> they pay all that money to come from China, Japan, Europe to come over and look at the rocks, whether they really kind of stop and think, hey, you know, we've got a little bit of extra cash to go on a vacation, let's spend it to go look at rocks. You know, they probably don't think that, but you know, in a way that's what they're doing and 
And so we thought, well, let's put something together that would help enhance that uh, experience. And also they have something, you know, that they can use when they're there. They also, we tried to take some really nice images so that they were representative of different things. And the way it's set up, the book, is that each of the parks, there are a handful of questions that are the most asked by visitors. And so we took that approach of answering those questions uh, visually and then also with some text. So, we, you know, they have something they can take with them that's sort of a souvenir that, that captures a lot of the, the things that they saw there. So the variety of landscape observed in the parks results from these three broad geologic processes. And I was just wondering if you could tell me what those processes are and tell me a little bit about them. So one of the things that uh, we have to teach our students early on is the, the concept of accumulation of sediment. Um, most of the rocks in southern Utah, with the exception of Little Salles and the Bajos and a few other igneous areas, are sedimentary rocks. And sediment doesn't accumulate everywhere. It doesn't accumulate on topographically uplifted areas, on highs, on mountain ranges. It accumulates in valleys and lows. And so uh, it turns out that in Utah we needed some tectonic uh, plate interaction to get some highs and, to, and some lows so that we had a basin in which sediment can accumulate. If you don't have a subsiding basin, you don't have sediment accumulation, you don't have a rock record, and you can't interpret anything. And so that's, that's the basis of, uh, of beginning with the rock record. You need that subsiding area where sediment can accumulate and make sedimentary rocks. Oftentimes they're ocean basins, sometimes they're lake basins, sometimes they're uh, subaerially exposed uh, desert basins. Uh, but nonetheless, th that subsidence needs to occur. So once you accumulate a rock record, then tectonics also over time can uplift what used to be a basin and put it up in a higher level and things can erode off of that. And, and so it's that constant interaction with uh, in plate tectonics that allows you to accumulate, then you uplift, you erode, you reaccumulate somewhere else called the rock cycle. And that happens over and over again over geologic time. And, uh, you know, you could say that the surface of Utah, the land surface of Utah, the landscapes that we see today are just in that rock cycle process of being uplifted, re-eroded, and redeposited in, in topographic lows. So we are pretty lucky in geologic time that we got to be seeing this at this point in the rock cycle. We are. We're very lucky to see what we see, and things will continue to evolve. We'll, we'll see some more interesting, th if we could step into the future, we'd see some really interesting landforms develop and some very interesting landforms uh, erode pretty rapidly. Uh, Bryce Canyon National Park, the amphitheaters there, for example, very soft rocks of the Claron Formation and uh, the headward erosion of the Perea River system is really quite rapidly in geologic time eroding back uh, that, that wall, that amphitheater. And so if we could step a couple million years into, into the future, we'd see the amphitheater probably move back a couple miles from where it is today. So uh, things are eroding away in places, but new things are developing as that, as that process, that rock cycle process continues. So when you say you need some place for the sediment to deposit, was there a place here that it all deposited and then it, um, and then we're seeing what we're seeing now because of that? Yeah, the, uh, the basin, the, the rocks that you see in the national parks, arches and canyonlands, Zion, um, range in age from 
middle tr middle Triassic up through uh, early Cenozoic, meaning going back about 225 million years up through you know 50 million years ago, and the re the the area that we're in here, the western interior that extends to the Gulf of Mexico and up to the Arctic Ocean was subsiding during that time. And the source area for the sediment was off to the west, a mountain range that geologists refer to as the severe orogeny or severe mountains. And that uplift was shedding sediment into this basin. Okay. And then about 15 million years ago, this area started then to uplift and the Colorado River and its tributaries have been able to keep pace with that uplift and have been down cutting slot canyons and, and the beautiful canyon scenery that we see. So sitting here at Moab, if you go north to Crescent Junction, you'll see the black shales of the Mancos and the cliffs of the Book Cliffs, and then there's several thousand feet of rock above that sedimentary rock. That all used to cover this area. Okay. But since rejuvenation and uplift 15 million years ago, like Tom was saying, those rocks that were in a basin depositing uh, during that uh, ancient time now more recently have been uplifted and are being eroded and taken down to the Sea of Cortez in the Gulf of uh, Baja. And we're just seeing at this point a snapshot in that sort of slow, continual evolution of landscapes through time. So the arches that we see in the park today uh, won't be here in a couple hundred thousand years, maybe sooner. But if we would have been here a couple hundred thousand years ago, we would have seen arches that have long since disappeared. So it would have been kind of cool to come see you know, what variety of arches there were back then. But yeah, it just, keep, just keeps cycling, just keeps changing. And so you said that the sediment that got deposited here was coming from the west. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are lots of different layers of, that have been deposited. And so uh, how does that work? They are, they're obviously not all coming from this one place. Well, the source is basically the same, but where they finally come to rest is different. Okay. So if you think of a, going to um, a, sand, a sandy desert, so it's above sea level, uh, the sand is moving, there are dunes, the wind is the predominant uh, medium for moving that. The sediment's all sort of medium-grained and well-rounded just because of that wind deposition. But if you think of a lake, in contrast to that, it would be finer-grained, you can have shale, there might be a different biota and flora in that lake than there would be in a desert. So the different conditions in what we call a depositional environment, and that can be glacial, lacustrine lake, or rivers and floodplains, or ocean, or reef. The, the variables are different, so the rocks and the pattern, the packaging of those sediments is different. So each sedimentary environment leaves an indelible record of its passing, and once you learn to read those rocks, then you can sort of read that story in the rock. So they look different because the conditions, the climate, the tectonics have changed while those rocks were being deposited. Presumably, what they're being deposited from also had different characteristics because of that building event. Very true. Uh, so let me just give you an example. When we look at the red uh, clay stones and mudstones of Bryce Canyon National Park, we think that a river system also came from out of Arizona and uh, it probably cut through Moenkopi and Chin Lee and those red rocks of the Triassic to be deposited, you know, those hundred and what, hundred and two hundred million year old rocks 
cut through those, made sediment out of them. They were red and carried that sediment into these lakes that were only 50 million years old and redeposited them as delta, deltaic uh, sediments in this lake, uh, which made the red rocks of Bryce Canyon. So depending upon where that river comes from, it, if it comes from different terrains, it's going to carry different types of sediment and different colors of sediment and give you a different look. And, but Scott really hit it on the head as far as the two big players in any landscape development is the tectonics, the plate tectonics, making the highlands and the lowlands and the basins, and also the, uh, the climatic system. Uh, and and so as, as the plates on Earth's crust move around the globe, they move themselves through different climatic belts. And those climatic belts affect the depositional system as to whether it's uh, a glacial outwash plain or whether it's a river system or a lake or an ocean shoreline. Um, that is very, very a strong influence on that is the climate system that it's moving through. So climate and tectonics really give us the look of the rock record that we see. So can you paint a picture for me of what this area was looking like when and where it was, what the landmass is, where they all were as it's starting to, um, as things are depositing here? The first deposits in this sort of western interior basin that we've been alluding to that we're sort of in the middle of here in Moab, uh, first started depositing during late Triassic time. We call it the Chinle Formation. The initial deposits are coarse conglomerates and coarse sandstones that represent braided streams, um, proximity or closeness to the, the source of sediment. Then those are overlain by the shales of the petrified forest member, the Chin Li. So we would have gone through from sort of a gravelly river alluvial system into a sort of a meandering stream system. And the clays and, and and uh, shales that make up that uh, particular unit, the petrified forest, uh, were those overbank floodplain clays. And then, of course, as the name implies, there were also forests or trees growing on that floodplain. So after the Chin, Chin Li, then you go into the Wingate, and that's the, one of the big cliff-forming units here that has, um, again, sort of medium sand, rounded, frosted, large crossbeds you would have gone now into standing in the middle of a Sahara Desert type setting. And that continued more or less up through the, the cliffs of the Navajo sandstone, big thick uh, sands. Then you start to get into some marine units in, above the Navajo. So you could stand in the same place through that time and watch a number of these different environments and climate belts come and go. So that's why I say, you know, and then you get to the Cretaceous Black Shales and now you're in, in really sort of a, a deep marine basin that extended all the way to the Arctic Circle and to the Gulf of Mexico, essentially turning North America at the time of the Cretaceous into two big islands, one a mountainous island to the west and a flatter island back, back east. So the shore of it would have been over Price on the west and the eastern shore would have been somewhere in central Kansas. So that's how wide that would have been and gone from north to south. So. Oh, wow. Christina, you asked, the, you asked the question, could we draw you a picture, which was a perfect lead-in to our second book, because that's what we did with our second book. We drew nine different pictures 
of what Utah must have looked like from a, if we could fly a satellite across Utah and take a picture of it. You know, where would the mountains stick up and where would the river systems uh, go off to? And that's what we did with these paleogeographic reconstructions, which have been uh, being made by Ron Blakey at uh, Northern Arizona University for a decade or more. Uh, but we went just for Utah. He, he's done Western North America, and then he's done continental plate movements through geologic time, how they moved across the globe. But we focused just on what was happening in Utah, and uh, we drew those pictures. Uh, and uh, that's why we think of, you know, the picture's worth a thousand words. That's why we drew them, so that we could communicate a lot of information very quickly and get the idea well, this is what it looked like, and that's why we got salt here, and we got sand there, and uh, different rock units in different places. You started with the Moenkopi, is that right? The lowest? The uh, Or Chinle? The Chinle with this particular filling of this particular basin. What's under that? Well, <laughs> paradox. Yeah. Then you, you sort of reset the tectonics. Um, Below that, all the way back to rocks of the Precambrian, which is old, the rocks that were deposited in this area were actually deposited on the trailing edge of North America, on a westward-facing sl slope that was often flooded by the Paleo-Pacific Ocean. But then there's a North America collided with Pangaea. We don't see any rocks of middle Triassic age. By late Triassic, it was starting to pull apart. And so everything else you see post that represents the leading edge and the severe erogeny and, and mound building events affecting the west, where before the rocks in the Moenkopi and older, the mountains were back in the Appalachians and on the east coast of North America. So since Triassic time, basically Utah, or Utah and North America have been moving north and then westward. Okay. Previous to that, uh, there was some collision between two giant supercontinents, one called Laurasia, which was North America was part of, one called Gondwana. At times they came together to make another supercontinent called Pangaea. At times they separated. And uh, when they were bumping against each other, uh, we created, uh, way back in the Pennsylvanian and the Permian, uh, the Paradox Basin, which you folks are very uh, familiar with around here. And Scott has worked uh, the uh, the carbonate uh, cyclothems and cycle depositional cycles uh, of the Four Corners area in the Paradox Basin uh, extensively in his career with his graduate students, and uh, the salt tectonics of that basin are integral to the landscape that we see today here in uh, in Moab Valley and in in the uh, in the park at Arches National Park. So the plate tectonic configuration was a little bit different back in the Pennsylvanian and, and Permian, uh, but nonetheless, accumulation of rocks when we have a down, a down, a subsiding basin, and we had uh, up to the just to the northeast of this paradox basin, we had a major uplift, which is called the Young Compadre uplift, and it was shedding sediment off into this salt-filled basin as well. So a uh, little bit different tectonics kind of dry arid conditions, uh, climatic conditions, and we get this salt-filled basin called the Paradox Basin. You were saying then that that has a lot to do, the Paradox has a lot to do with the what the features are that we see today. Can you explain to me, um, or Scott, since it sounds like you're doing a lot of the work there, what, why and how? 
Uh, yeah, if, uh, if you go up to Arches currently, the start of the show there's a layer of Jurassic rock called the Entrada Sandstone. Um, and then it's overlain and underlain by some other rocks. But the, all of these formations are really pretty generally distributed in the Colorado Plateau and in eastern Utah and parts of adjacent states. But it's right here at Arches where we see the development of so many arches. So there has to be something more to the story than just that the Entrada Sandstone is a good arch former. A couple hundred million years ago, 300 million years ago, we would have been sitting here in Moab in the center of a very uh, shallow at times broad ocean and from time to time it evaporated and formed salt. Salt accumulated and it accumulated to be several thousand feet thick. Well when you start to load that salt with sediment the salt starts to depress and starts to flow. So it's a very plastic rock. It's not very strong so the sediment coming off the mountain front started pushing that salt down, started the salt flowing, and it flowed away from the mountain front and squeezed into a big tall fin of salt 10,000 feet thick. And that continues until the salt is squeezed out. It sits on the basement rock and the salt's gone. It can't flow anymore. But in the meantime, you have built a fin of rock that's several tens of miles long, a couple miles wide, 10,000 feet thick. Moab's sitting right on top of one of those. Spanish Valley or Moab Valley as it's also called it is one of these salt fins. So if we were to drill down beneath where we're sitting we go through 10,000 feet of displaced salt. And as that salt came up the layers of rock that were over it started or as part of that top of the salt wall started to erode or move elsewhere the layers of rock over it started to drape into it and they were brittle and as they folded into it linear fractures parallel to that salt wall started to open up making the fins that we see like at fiery furnace and then you can exploit those fins weaknesses layers in the fins start to get eroded out and those start to become the incipient windows and then as continued erosion takes place then those develop into arches so these formations are widespread, but it's just right here at Moab where we have these salt walls and this drape of overlying brittle rock that fracture into fins that can then turn into arches. Help me understand the scale a little bit, because I'm just not sure. Do, am I looking at a salt wall when I look at the walls around Moab, or what scale are we talking? The width of the salt wall is from one canyon wall of Moab Canyon over you know to the other okay one. so that's what I was thinking okay. and then it extends so that's the narrow okay. width, and then it can extend for tens of miles in a northwest southeast direction so there was salt covering where we are right now and then the sediment got deposited on top and then the salt flowed out and created the walls that we see correct yeah they almost get to the surface and then once they get near the surface, they differentially erode because they're soft and they're uh, dissolvable by water and groundwater. And so right at the crest of this big salt wall, it actually starts to erode away and we get collapse of the surrounding layers into the center. So we're in a valley here, but the valley is sitting on the top of this big salt wall. Okay. So that's where Moab is sitting. Uh, in this slight valley right on the top of this giant salt wall. 
the rocks on either side of the valley dip away from the center of the valley because they were bent up as that salt moved upward. And then why? Yeah, linear salt dome. Um, why do we have a valley if we're on the top of a dome? Well, as Tom indicated, when the salt gets to the surface, it's soluble. And so it starts to dissolve away and the overlying rocks and all that gravity, they just lets them down on top slowly. Okay. Salt is much more easily eroded due to dissolution than is a sandstone or a mudstone or a shale or a limestone. And so it differentially erodes away once it hits the surface of the earth. It's quickly to erode away. What do you enjoy about being scientists? I enjoy teaching. Uh, I enjoy people um, and I enjoy watching discovery happen in my students. Um, when I see the light bulbs turn on in their eyes and I see them get excited, that gets me excited and is very satisfactory. Yeah, I would have to sort of follow along what uh, Tom said. It's certainly the most rewarding part is working with students. But I think science is incredibly important in society today. And I think that it's uh, misunderstood to a large degree just exactly what science is and what it does. Uh, but with the problems that uh, we are facing as a society, we need to make decisions based on data and on pattern and process and outcome rather than emotion and you know what we want or think should happen. And so uh, we try to you know get students to realize that there are data out there and the data can't be ignored. Um, we want them to learn how to interpret those data to to realized you can answer some pretty fun and cool questions by collecting data and you know figuring out what processes made those made those patterns and uh, yeah the, the, it's just a pleasure working with students who make that effort to to get to that point and do it well thank you both so much for this interview it's been very cool well thank you we appreciate the invitation it's been great to be here you can listen again to Science Moab on kzmu.org or by downloading the Science Moab podcast on iTunes. The music for our show is written by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU.